Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Podcast. Today I am joined by the man with 15 names and Chris Kirk. I am joined by Carl Langen Evans and Chris Kirk. How are you doing, guys? Feeling good. Thanks for having us on, Ian. Excellent. Carl, you're a return guest. I am. I am, mate. Yeah, thank you very much for having me back on. But I hope Chris will do the majority of the talking this time. He's far more interesting than me anyway. Oh, that's good. Now, um, for those of you that are listening, I am going to share a screen here and you can go to the YouTube channel and have a look at this if you wish. Now, Chris, before the podcast, I um, was uh, just checking your paper again that I read a few weeks ago, which was the kind of impetus for you coming on here to the podcast. But when I when I went into Google and put in your name, there was lots of different results come up, Chris. So I need to do a bit of fact checking with you if that's all right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. So... Are you Chris Kirk here on Sherdog? This one here that you could, can you see this? Ah, uh, yeah, no, that's not me. That's not me. That's no. not you. No, no, no. I'm, so I'm definitely not 100. You can tell You can tell it's not him from the weight class because there's no way he's making that. You no. That's what I thought. I thought, surely that can't be him. I know it's hard to tell on Twitter and pictures, but he looks like a, a fit. A lot bigger than me, and I can't make 142. And I, if he's making 142, maybe he's only five foot two. But I thought I'd ask. So that's not you on share dog in case anybody goes googling you. Be one of my legs might make the featherweight division, but other than that, no. All right, so we'll just go over here now. And we'll just check here on martialarts.com as well. That's not you either, is it? No, no, that's not me. I've I've never fought in MMA, so yeah, all these other all these other Chris Kirks, that's definitely not me. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, if I were you now at this stage, I just make up a fake profile and pull it up because uh, there's, there's about 15 Chris Kirks who've um, who fought. Um, so you might as well just put up one there as well and have a have a go. Yeah, I'm I'm not the golf I'm not the golf Chris Kirk either. Oh, yeah. So are you that Chris Kirk on Twitter? Is that you? That's me. That's, That's me. you. The, okay. the big four, the, the big forehead gives it away. Yeah. <laughs> Right, I'm glad I did that. Now I know I can take the piss out of you because if you were a fighter, I wouldn't take the piss out of you. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like uh, the tweet that uh, Paul Felder had last week. Have you, did you guys see that tweet with Paul Felder retiring? Yeah. I, I saw him announce it on, on the broadcast. I didn't see his tweet. No. So he put out a tweet saying, you know, he's retiring from MMA and then someone wrote back, yeah, about, about time or you're better off, they said, because you're a far better commentator than you are a fighter. And he wrote back, you wouldn't say that to my face. And he goes, no, I wouldn't, because the guy writes back, no, I wouldn't, because he kicked my ass. Paul Felder writes back, fair enough. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> well, it's only being honest, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're tough. Fair play to you, being honest, yeah. Uh, so, Chris, you join us today from, uh, from the UK. So where are you guys based, uh, yourself and Carol, up in Liverpool? Um, well, I actually live in uh, Burnley, which is in the middle of Lancashire, um, and I'm studying in Liverpool, but I work in Sheffield, so I do a lot of driving around the whole of the north of England. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And Carol, you're based in Liverpool? I'm based in God City, mate, yeah, in, in Scouseland, yeah. So I'm, um, no, no travelling for me. So yeah, no, Chris is um, very fortunate to have Chris as one of our PhD students working in our, I suppose, portfolio of combat sports research study work that we're that we're looking into um and yeah that's, okay. that's and i'm just based in liverpool if anybody doesn't know where liverpool it's one of the um eastern suburbs of dublin in ireland <laughs> pretty much <laughs> <laughs> 
Excellent. 25 minutes on the plane. You go up, you come straight down. So Chris, can you give us a bit of background um, on your sort of education and your sporting background and what led you to starting your PhD in this area? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my sporting background is actually a bit circuitous, really, as was my entry into academia. I grew up playing basketball and I was absolutely, absolutely obsessed with basketball for most of my, most of my life. Um, I, I did my undergraduate degree at Sheffield Hallam in sports coaching, but I have to admit I was, uh, I was one of the undergrad students that really frustrated me now because I was far more interested in playing basketball and going out with my mates. So I can't say I was a particularly good student. Um, but then after that, I started teaching in uh, further education, which is sixth form colleges, 16 to 19 year olds. Um, and I wasn't, I still wasn't into martial arts at this point. I was probably about 24, 25. Uh, and I had a season of basketball where I was playing six, seven days a week. And I got to summer and thought, I just want to do something completely different. I'll have a go at martial art. Started Taekwondo, through that discovered MMA, and that became my new obsession. So when it came time for me to, I decided I wanted to do a master's and I thought I'll try a master's by research. Um, and I wanted to do a study in MMA. And I'd seen all these videos of uh, MMA fighters doing really strange training techniques. Um, and the video I always remember was a video of uh, Vandalay Silva wearing a, wearing a head guard with a snorkel gaffer taped to it with his nose all taped up with gaffer tape as well. <laughs> Doing, doing, this circuit, doing this circuit around the gym. Um, and it was the same time that these uh, power breathe devices were coming out as well. So I thought, well, that'll be a, I could get a study like that done in a year, I think. I'll, I'll, go, and speak to, <clears throat> I'll go and speak to someone at the uni and talk about doing this study. Do training methods like this actually make a difference? Yeah. So I went to speak to uh, Dr. Howard Hurst at the University of Central Lancashire near me. Um, and I said, look, we'd, this is a study idea I've got in this sport, MMA. Um, there's not really much known about it at the minute. Do you want to work with me on this study? And he said, well, what is known about the sport? Go away, do a lit review. And I came back in about two, three weeks time and I'd found seven papers in, in total. And this was 2012. Yeah. So for the entire sport, there were just seven papers. So he said, well, there's no point doing that. We need to have a look at this. So I did my master's in research, just trying to get the basic physiological well, not even physiology at this point. We're just trying to figure out how do the athletes move? What are, what are the loads that they're experiencing in training? So we used, um, well, I've got a pile of them here actually still. Uh, so we used accelerometers to measure the external load of different training movements and then apply that to sparring bouts. Um, and I spent 18 months doing this study and just fell in love with the research process. I'd, like I said, I wasn't a good student before this. I certainly wasn't a scientist by any stretch. Well, I just fell in love with the research process over this 18 months. And then um, with Howard, I managed to get three papers published from, from the master's uh, mm. thesis. Um, and from that point on, I, I, as soon as I finished the master's, I was like, right, that's it. I definitely don't want to do any more studying. Six weeks later, I started Googling PhDs and trying to think, <laughs> right, how, how do I go down this route? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then after, after a few years of applying to different funded PhDs and getting knocked back, I realised that probably the only way I'm going to get to do my study, looking at MMA in more detail, is to go to the people who are doing it themselves and ask them directly, are you interested in working with me? And through, through Googling different people at the best institutes, so I was looking at different unis, LJMU was one of them. Uh, I got talking to James Morton and James said, I've 
got a, I've got a PhD student at the minute called Carl. He's doing all his studies in combat sports. Yeah, let's have a meetup. So we had a meeting, and I think by the end of that meeting, it had gone from being a discussion of I've got this idea to right, we'll get you started in eight months' time. <laughs> I had so one of those um, conversations this morning with a student from Germany. I'm thinking about doing a PhD. After two hours, we had like six projects mapped out. <laughs> and he's like, well, I guess I'm staying here for four years. <laughs> I've, I've got to say, in, in that first meeting, like um, it was the first time I met James, and obviously everyone knows who James Morton is. It was, uh, was nerve-wracking having that first meeting with him. And I'd never met, actually met Carl before. And, and I have to apologise, Carl. It was the first time I heard of you in this meeting at that time. But just there, the way they were talking in the meeting, convinced me that yeah LJMU is the place where this work had to be done this was where it could really work and that was so just just before that so you didn't do taekwondo because Carol your background was taekwondo as your sport yeah and you you were at a very high level in taekwondo in the UK weren't you did you were you going to the Olympics I no, well, I was I was aiming for it. Um, the only way I was going if I went to spectate, I was never <laughs> never going to compete. Um, but no, I, I I competed at a decent level in Taekwondo. Um, so I started back in 1997, showing my age a little bit there, to be honest with you, Ian. Despite how youthful and amazing that I look, um, and I, yeah, I, I was, did relatively well in the junior ranks. So I went to the Junior Olympic Games for GB and did did well there and then yeah I had ambitions of going to Beijing in 2008 but yeah, it just just wasn't right for me so yeah I, I competed at a high level and um, funnily enough me and Chris have never had this conversation before as well Um, the two sports that I was actually very into was taekwondo and basketball oh really <laughs> so I, yeah I used to play point guard for me college we we got to the all under 16 uh, semi-finals um, and I, I basically got this so yeah there you go, Chris. Small, small world. It, all it took was for us to come onto a podcast to find out more about each other, mate. Even though we've yeah. been doing a PhD <laughs> for years, but um, yeah, no, I, I had to basically make a choice. They, they were like, um, my parents were very much, you know, basketball or or taekwondo, yeah. and I think for me it was more a case of, and Chris will be able to testify to this. Basketball, you know, especially now, but even back then, wasn't particularly a very you know, well-known or, or well-pushed or, you know, we, we had the BBL and it was, well, I was never going to make the BBL anyway, to be honest, but it was kind of like, I can't probably make a go of that, but with this, I can I can probably do something with it. And then, yeah, my my transition was, I'd, I ended up retiring quite early. And, and for me, it was more a case of the weight making that was affecting me, which is why I, I kind of went down that route. Weird, um, yeah. yeah, right. So, so it was like my, my own pair, similar to Chris, I suppose, we all, we all follow a, a path that, that interests us, that piques our interest. With me, uh, the, the training methodologies and stuff had always interested me. But personally, because I'd been exposed to so much around weight making, and as, as we talked about last time I was on, you know, needing to lose like 10, 11, 12 kilos to make minus 58 was just ridiculously difficult. That, that was what spared me into that element, really. But the reason I asked that question is you guys have never trained together in taekwondo. No, 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 we haven't. We're, so are to you be honest, st- again, I, I didn't even know Chris did Taekwondo. I thought he was an <laughs> MMA through. I've learned more, more about him in the last five minutes than I, than I have <laughs> in the last couple of years. It's, it's all business usually, that's why. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, we just like to say here at Sleep for Performance, if you'd like any mediation, any coming together of families, <laughs> students and professors and leaders and, and, and employees, we can facilitate you getting to know your people. Just call me on 555-6249.
what I'd probably say quote, in our defense quote car as well, for ten percent discount. <laughs> <laughs> what I'd probably say in our defense is um, we've had a pandemic to contest with, so we oh, haven't actually. We, I, did, we I, didn't I have that over we, here. Yeah, we haven't even um, we haven't even been out for a beer yet, Chris, to have these type of conversations since you started, have we? So um, no, no. no. I'm I'm going to speak to James later today. We're we're going to get it penciled in. I think a little um, social so, social fact finding session about each other. <laughs> Don't worry, we will be legal. Then you can go and get stoned together. So you never trained taekwondo together. Are you are you still doing taekwondo, Chris, or have you moved into doing some MMA training yourself? No, no. Well, um, well, when I uh, when I took that that year off basketball, it was yeah. to do taekwondo, um, and I started training taekwondo, and, and I still had it, didn't really know what MMA was at this point. Um, I was probably I think this must have been about two thousand seven, two thousand eight, just as MMA was really taking off. Um, and I started watching like uh, the old cage raid shows that were yeah. on TV at like 11 o'clock at night thinking, oh, that, that looks a bit like Taekwondo. It's punchy kicky. I'll have a, I'll have a watch of that. <laughs> um, and then on one of those shows, it, it happened to mention uh, a fighter from Burnley called Rob Sinclair. And I was like, bloody hell, there's MMA fighters from Burnley. So I, I started Googling it and he ran a club in Burnley. And I thought, I'll go down and have a go. And that was my first taste of training MMA. Um and I started training with the intention of fighting, but after about 18 months, it was very, very clear that I should not step in a cage at any point. It was would not be in my uh, best interest to have a go to fighting. So why, why so, just interesting on that point, Chris, because I, and I, we're, we're, we are setting up a story here, but I want to ask you this question. Why did you feel like that? Was it because you came from that Taekwondo and basketball thing? Was it getting dragged to the ground, freaked you out? Was it just the intensity? Was it the kind of violent element of it that didn't sit with you? What was it that made you not want to be a fighter? Because this is a very interesting kind of psychological kind of, you know, platform where people come to martial arts, have all these kind of notions and then go all different ways. And conversely, people come in and go, oh, I don't want to fight, I want to learn self-defense. And then two years later, they're in the cage, absolutely mauling people. Like, so what was it for you? Uh, to be honest, it, it wasn't the it wasn't the grappling side that that worried me. In fact, that was the part I enjoyed most, and that's the side of it. I only really train now. I only really train jujitsu now. Oh, um, and the and we the, converted the, another the, one. We converted another one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and the actual and the actual, um, the actual physical contact side of it didn't bother me anyway. Because even when I was when I was a basketball player. My, I, w- I was a power forward on the teams I played for. My job was to yeah. get in the way and make a bit of a nuisance. Like an enforcer, yeah. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, so, the, But the one thing that I just could not stop doing was flinching when the punches were coming. Yeah. I just didn't have that switch of accepting you're going to get punched and just getting into that position to oh, take the punch. Yeah. And if you can't get over that hump, it's not going to be a healthy pastime for you. It's not going to work out for you. So I, I was just honest with myself and, and figured I'm not a fighter. I enjoy training. I enjoy yeah. combat sports, but it's not in me to be a fighter. So. Yeah. And so you're training jujitsu now currently? Uh, well, apart from the pandemic, yeah. yeah. Uh, if the pandemic wasn't on, I'd be there three nights a week. Yeah. yeah. And Carly, are you still training taekwondo or doing any grappling? I know you've got about 15 kids oh, now no. and you're full-time. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, just I'm I'm grappling life at the minute. To be honest with you, mate. <laughs> um, no, no, I uh, I probably stopped training again. The the pan I know it's all excuses, but the pandemic has no. I haven't thrown a kick in um, in anger. To be honest with you, mate, for about three years now. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know what it is. I think a lot of stuff's catching up with me. The knees are starting to get, starting to hurt. And I had a reconstruction on my ankle uh, about two years ago as well. So I've been been trying to get over that. But no, I um, was talking to Chris actually in, in the past. I really fancy having a go um, at the grappling. Obviously, um, you know, we talked talk last time, working with quite a lot of good guys in Liverpool, UFC yeah. and cage warriors and stuff and they're always like come down and train and but yeah it's just just never been something that I've really had the chance to do but it um I think going back to what Chris Chris was saying as well about the MMA for me when I was competing in Taekwondo and MMA was coming out I obviously watched you know UFC one and you know who's who's going to be the best and all this sort of stuff and I think probably as a classical combat sport stylist it was you know there was a bit of snobbery of like oh well it's just a bunch of you know hoodlums just kicking jumps out or kicking and punching there's no art to it and there's no you know it's just whoever's the toughest or whatever it may be but the more i've been involved in it mate you start to really realize the the real technical tactical skill elements and then the fact that obviously within mma you're doing so many potential disciplines between striking and and you know grappling offense defense it's it's, it fascinates the life out of me. It really does. So now I'm um, going around the houses as always with me. I'm not doing any training at the minute, but it's definitely something that I want to get into to get a, I think probably to get a bit more of an appreciation of as well for, for in, in the work that mm. we do. I think it's just nice to experience it and feel it and understand it. And But no, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate at the minute. We've got some really good MMA coaches and, you know, whenever we go away, I'm always picking their brains about mm. the technical tactical side of things and you know why why they do what they do and what this means and stuff like that so yeah it's interesting you say that because that's really like the last um i was out for over a year i had a a neck injury and a neck fusion sort of cut me up in here and went in and put in some of the the old steel plates like bro your steam steam i had um and aljamain sterling had it recently in the ufc chris weidman's had it and so it takes a bit of while to get over that and obviously like what you're saying, Carl, as we get older, there's a few more other things in it. So you kind of, during that time, you start looking, I was looking more kind of the philosophy of, you know, martial arts and some of the technical aspects, because I enjoy that as well from a research perspective and just from a general kind of um, improvement type of point. The reason I'm asking these questions about backgrounds is is because I spoke to Israel Halpern um, on the podcast yesterday. And Israel, as you know, did his PhD at the AIS, Australian Institute of Sport, and He's looked a lot of feedback, like in between rounds, during rounds, quite interesting research. But obviously, uh, uh, Israel's got background in strength and conditioning as well and was a fighter himself, right? And I had Reed Reed on the podcast recently as well, talking about cutting weight. And it's really interesting in combat sports. And I'm going to ask you this question. Do you know any person doing research in combat sports at the moment who is not trained in a martial art? Probably because I not, can't, no. I, I think it's yeah. one of those unique por- sports that where yeah. nearly every single person that's doing some research now has done some type of martial art. It's it's really yeah. weird. In other sports, you can, oh, I was a fan of soccer. I liked the, uh, well, I was doing soccer stuff, but I got into like, I don't know, rugby league. Um, and it's more like that. Whereas in combat sports, everybody comes to it either from being a pro fighter, an amateur, or a very, you know, interested amateur recreational type person like like we will be now um you know so it's 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 really interesting that people come to it or like what you came from carl the problem of weight cutting you know israel yeah. was interested from he suggested the problem of having bad corners so we've all come to it from different 
different things. I've been obsessed with the travel and the sleep and the fight camp and the stress and how things will happen. That's what brought me to it. So it's, yeah. it's really interesting that, you know, um, you know, all, all these combat research people have dabbled in martial arts at some stage, or if not, are practitioners, lifetime practitioners. I think a lot of it is, you know, I mean, because like you say, we're all involved and it comes from that, like, it's a very close-knit environment, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very kind of like, as, as Chris said, you, you don't play at this, you know, this, this isn't something that you do, you know, you, you can train and you can get fitness and stuff, but I mean, even, I mean, you guys know, even just training recreationally, it's not a, um, it's not an easy pastime. Yeah, no, it's yeah. not something that you would, you know, you'd necessarily, it's not like going and doing a round of golf, for example. Um, but no, I think a lot of it comes from that, mate. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's it's the culture and the attitude and the, you know, like that, that whole martial sense, that, that military mm-hmm. sense, well, I suppose that's where it all comes from, of like, collegiality and belonging and, and being a part of something and it's funny we were talking not so long ago about how much respect you just tend to get from being involved in it in the past you know I know last time I was on it was we were talking about um you know obviously me working in the nutrition realm and you know obviously weight management weight cutting you just get instantaneous respect and people listen to you because oh well you've done it so you you understand and it's like yeah. well okay, let's, let's forget the, the 10 years of education, the PhD, you know, all the expertise. But the, the main reason why you want to listen to me is because I was a former combat athlete who used to, used to cut a lot of weight. And yeah, it's, um, it's a strange world, mate. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You really are. I, I, think, I, think you're, I think you're right. And like when we were at the Australian Institute of Sport, um, so obviously I'm on the west coast of Australia. It's a five-hour flight over to Canberra, but I will go over periodically to do research at the Australian Institute of Sport. And it was myself... Israel Halpern was there doing his research and Reed Real was there doing his at, t- at the time. So, um, and we were all kind of a, a bit older as well. I was, I was the oldest. I think I was older than some of the full-time staff and some of the supervisors. <laughs> but anyway, um, it was interesting because Lachlan Giles was there as well and Lachlan had not long got his black belt. So we're talking about maybe seven or eight years ago or more. Yeah, back around 2014. And so we were running camps like studies with like Judo Japan and Judo Australia and Judo New Zealand. But it was interesting um, at the end of the day, because Lachlan was there as a, as a physiotherapist, Lachlan was doing his PhD in physiotherapy, but in clinical settings, but he was there kind of doing some work. And it was interesting, like we'd stop, the guys had stopped grappling in the evening at six o'clock and go get dinner. And as they were getting off, we would run into the back, put our geese on and start doing jujitsu on the mats. And the Japanese guys were like looking at us, like this slow kind of staring, like, oh, jujitsu. And we're like, yeah. Oh, you all train? And we're going, like, we're like, yeah. So it was Lachlan, Reed, myself, Israel was jumping on the mats. Israel's wife was starting at the time. And it was just really interesting. Like every time we got the opportunity, we would start training. But that, to your point, Carl, that got us loads of respect like from people. Yeah. And then when myself and Reed ran that big wake cut and study Reed's one, the fact that you come from that background, again, gives you just, you know, yeah. it just it just sets it up straight away. I think like from doing other sports myself, like long distance running and swimming, you get some respect in other sports from that, but there's no so more than in martial arts yeah. when people know you're a practitioner. It's just like, because people know what it's like to get a purple belt in jiu-jitsu or what it's like to train for even an amateur boxing fight or to be a pro, but people know it, have seen the work that goes in. So you just, you just get it straight away. You get the culture, you can just slide right in and you can just, you can just get that engagement straight away. You don't have those barriers to break down. And it's, because um, it's very unique culture, I find. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, even for um, like say Professor James Morton, who who's, who's the leader of our research group with with me and Chris and all the you know the combat sport research that we're doing. He, he boxed as an amateur. I mean, he's from Belfast, so you know, boxing's pretty much <laughs> pretty much in his DNA. Um, but when he when he came over to Liverpool and he was helping a lot of the guys with nutrition, he he trained. So he was actually training in the uh, in the Solly Boxing Club here. He had an in fact he was training with Nick. Him and Nick are quite good mates. Him and Nick Pizza they used to train together and um, yeah he had he had a fight and because of that background again you know and that kind of like oh, okay you're mm-hmm. one of us and you're willing to go through the grind and you understand what we we experience and what we're exposed to it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, mate. It goes a heck of a long way. Whereas you could you could work in a lot of other sports, and yeah, you know, you'd, I've I've worked in um with with my SSC background, I've worked in a multitude of other sports that I've never never even heard of. Never mind participated within, and <laughs> you get um you know yeah you, you get kind of like instantaneous respect without yeah. having to have been part of it. So yeah, it's an interesting one now. All right, and I think and I think also the the idea of figuring out what are the interesting things we need to know about the sport? Mm. You, you can't see those things with your eyes from watching a combat sport. I watch football or rugby. You can yeah, see yeah. them sprinting. Yeah, you can yeah. see them changing direction. You, if, you're watching, if you're watching an MMA fight and they're up against the cage and they're grappling for underhooks against the cage, it looks like they're just leaning against each other. But until you've actually been in that situation for three or four minutes, you don't understand exactly what's going on and physiologically what they're experiencing. So you're not going to know what the interesting questions are until you've had a go at it. Same thing in jiu-jitsu. If you're on bottom, well, it just looks like someone's led on top of you until you're on bottom for five minutes. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, so I think that's a big part of it as well. By just by taking part in the combat sports, you know what's happening. So you, you, you get a better idea of where the interesting questions are going to be. So I think that's, that's right, going to play yeah. into it as well. That's why I stopped going to uh, to bars and pubs, you know, to watch um, MMA because one, people would get a bit kind of hyperinflated, right? Two, every time you got up, someone to take your take your chair, which was annoying. But the most annoying thing is when someone would go to the ground, people would start shouting, "Get up, get up! Why doesn't he just get the fuck up?" And I was sitting there with jiu-jitsu guys and wrestlers, and we were just like, "Oh man, like this is just so ignorant. Why doesn't he get up? What's wrong with him? He's just he's just giving up. He's just giving up." It's like. You try and get up off the ground when someone wants to fucking pin you to the ground and choke your fucking head off. Like it's it's not happening. Like to your point, Chris, it just it it's not happening. And you don't know it until you know it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's crack why into does, this. Why uh, doesn't he just knock him out? <laughs> yeah, knock him out. I love that yeah. in the corner. You gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta knock him out. Oh fuck! I thought I was in here like walking around in circles. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in here having a break. Like, yeah, sorry about that. We just flew to Vegas for me to walk around for five minutes. Knock him out. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> what am I paying you for? <laughs> um, let's dig into this paper that came out recently on Plus One because this is was kind of the impetus of me reaching out to you, Chris, to have you on. And this is a, a I found this a really interesting paper because I think this paper will have links into uh, many other research components and will set up a lot of other research. So the title of this paper, and this is open access, we'll put it in the show notes. Open access means it's free, you don't have to pay anything, you can go and get it. And the title of the paper is Quantification of Training Load Distribution in Mixed Martial Arts Athletes, MMA, A Lack of Periodization and Load Management. Chris, you were the lead author. You had Carl on there as well, uh, David Clark, who I don't know, and James Morton as well. So, um, just by way of background, Chris, 
um, kind of summarizing the introduction to this paper. Can you give us a background um, on this paper? And if you wouldn't mind just giving actually a kind of a clinical definition or scientific definition of what MMA is in case anybody has any misconceptions or doesn't know. Oh, uh, a, a clinical definition of MMA. Other than, so ra- rather, than how, definition. Ha- <laughs> rather than how I des- <laughs> rather than how I describe it to my mum when she asked me what I'm actually doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so MMA is a combat sport made up of uh, striking and grappling movements where you're allowed to punch, kick, knee and elbow to the head and body, but you can also get hold of your opponent, take them onto the ground and force them to submit by admitting defeat, by bending their limbs the wrong way and choking them until they might be going unconscious. Sounds incredibly uh, brutal, but it's an extremely technical, complicated Mm. sport with multiple different ways of achieving victory and multiple different ways of winning and losing, which is why I find it such a fascinating sport and such a fascinating event because I, I don't think there's any sport on the world in the on the world in the world that is as complex as high level MMA. Yes. Yeah. Just the number of things that are involved are just incredible. Um, in terms of background to this paper, this forms uh, the first full paper from my PhD. Um, and my PhD is essentially trying to characterize what MMA is as a sport. Because um, I mentioned earlier when I did my master's, I, I started my lit review with just seven papers in MMA that we can find in total. Uh, and then when I had my first meeting with James and Carl, they asked me again, go away, do a lit review. How many papers can you come back with? And bearing in mind that there was six years in between these, oh no, uh, yeah, six years in between these two events, there was still only about 30 papers in MMA that I could find after six years. And six of those were mine. So it, it wasn't a case of like the MMA research bubble suddenly exploded. exploded. Yeah. <laughs> so the first question that we had, rather than thinking about how do we improve performance, how do we uh, improve the athletes, was just what is the sport? What are they doing? What are they doing in the day-to-day training? How, how intense is the actual training sessions? What kind of loads are they experiencing in the training sessions? What different activities are they doing? What are the different things that they take part in in training? How much strength and conditioning did they do? So that was the aim of this first study, to actually just spend an extended period of time with the athletes every single day of their training process, just trying to record and capture what they're actually doing on a daily basis. How do they train? How does the how does their training match what we would expect an athlete to train within a traditional sport? What are the loads and everything? How is that affecting their fatigue? So that was the aim of this paper. Spend eight weeks just doing nothing but watching MMA fighters train. What did they do? What is the characteristics of the sport? So this so when we talk about training loads, you're talking about um, for example, over a week. If someone gets up in the morning, let's say we'll just take an average person, not an MMA, training load might be to get up in the morning, to go for a walk, to walk the dog. It's an hour of walking, to go to work, to come home in the evening. They might go out and run like a 6K run for half an hour. So their training load for that day is 90 minutes. The one in the morning might be classified as low to moderate intensity. The one in the evening is high intensity. The next day, they might get up in the morning. They might swing some kettlebells in their garage for 30 minutes, be really, you know, high intensity, like a, like a high intensity uh, training session like a hit session and then that might be a high session then they might train in the afternoon so a trend load might be only be 30 minutes but very high 
output, self-reported or high RP perceived exertion. And then cumulatively then that's the training load for that day or for that week or that specified period. Is that how you would define kind of a training load? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Um, so we could look at it it's on one, a daily it's basis. One, it's one way. It's one way. <laughs> one way, yeah, yeah, one way. Yeah, so remember, yeah. Now, remember now, I'm a sleep scientist, not an exercise physiologist, whilst I cross over into that area. So I'm trying to make it simple for people like me who have half a brain. Well, this was, this was the complicated thing that we had to figure out, first of all, how, how are we actually going to talk about training load? Oh, right. MMA, so there's no consensus uh, then, is there? <laughs> well, no, not really, because uh, when you talk about training load for an endurance athlete, for like a cyclist or, an, or a marathon runner, you're pretty much basing it on heart rate because they're only trying to achieve one thing, improve their cardiorespiratory function. And how, how, is that, how is that reflected? Yeah. Through the heart rate. In or MMA... Yeah. Of VO2, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In MMA, it's not just about the physiological response. They're also trying to improve their, uh, well, not the cardiorespiratory response, I should say. They're also being placed under a, high, a relatively high muscular strain and a relatively high neuro strain as well. And then they've got the weight bearing of all their activities. And many of the training, uh, training sessions they do, they're not ambulatory. So they're not moving around the mats. They could spend five minutes literally on their back just Stationary, moving yeah. their hips yeah. just moving their hips back and forth we we have no idea whether that's going to give us any indication training load just from heart rate the heart rate could be relatively low because of the position that they're in and because of the lack of ambulatory movement but they could but they're still working incredibly hard so that was one of the first issues that we had which is why we ended up going with the rating of perceived exertion in the end because First of all, it's non-invasive. We don't have to get equipment onto the athletes in order to collect this kind of information. But it also gives us uh, an overall, I'm going to sound poncy by using this word, but an overall gestalt of their physiological response to what they're Right, we're just going to take a short commercial break and we're going to break. What was that word again? Gestalt. 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 Wow. (laughs) I've got to Google that word. Jesus. Carol, you've done a great job coaching this man. Oh, mate, he, he used words like that far before he met me, to be honest. He's probably <laughs> using less of them since he's met me. Just dumb, <laughs> I've been dumbing him down every conversation. I think, like, from my from my perspective, for like you were saying, Ian, for the listeners, and then I'll, I'll probably put something to Chris, because Chris can explain this, because we're going to look at it in two different ways. Yeah. Thinking about load, so the point that you made earlier, it's a product of two things. The amount of something times by how hard it is so the amount as you mentioned could be the amount of time the amount of distance it could be the amount of weight that you've lifted and then that could be times by um you know how many reps how many sets it could be times by the intensity of, of the effort do you know what i mean basically so and you can classify that in two ways you can look at it in terms of the product of internal load but also external load. And Chris is looking at this as well. So what he's looking at in this paper is is more one perspective rather. Do you want to cover that, Chris? Because that's probably a, an interesting... Because I know we've talked about, like, well, you could look at heart rate and VO2 and you could look at, hmm. you know, like RPE. Do you want to give a little bit of an overview? Obviously, because we, it, it's it's a lay audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, as Carl mentioned, you can look at it in terms of internal or external load, the external load being what they've actually done. And the internal load as what how their body's actually responded. Um, 
Now, in terms of quantifying what they've done, that's where the difficulty comes in from the complexity of the sport. Because like Carl said, if you, if you want to know the external load of a strength training session, it's just how much weight they lifted. If you want to know the external load of the endurance session, how far did the person run? What incline hill did they cycle up? Mm. Uh, but in MMA, we don't actually have any method of measuring the external load yet because they're not traveling any distance, or at least the distance they travel doesn't matter for their performance. They're not necessarily lifting a load, and it's not necessarily just the number of techniques that they perform. So we had to think about how we're going to measure external load and how we're going to measure internal load. Now, the internal load measurements have come from the RPE that we've measured, yeah. because rating perceived exertions are a really, really useful tool. People look at it and think, well, it's just a subjective number. It's just someone saying, I worked this hard. But it's... It's actually a bit more complex than that. It's actually the brain interpreting the feedback coming back from the muscles, from the organs, from the joints, from the tissues, and interpreting that as this is a lot more difficult than I was expecting it to be, or actually this is a lot easier than I was expecting it to be, which is where that word just out comes from. It's measuring the entire process of what the body's doing to achieve its external load, which is why we went down the RPE route for uh, internal load. Our external load, a lot trickier. And that's a, that's a paper that we're currently writing up uh, between me, Carl, Dave, and James. And that's where the accelerometer units, these little yep. things come in again. Um, so through this training process, we, uh, we, through this training period during this paper, we also had them wear accelerometer units for a couple of weeks during the training as well. And we're hoping that will give us an indication of what the external load for each of the movements in each of the training categories are. But that's coming so, in the next few months. So when they wore those accelerometers, was that just during the training sessions or even outside of the training sessions? Oh, no. All that's been captured here is just the training sessions. All right. And the reason I ask that is because there, there's, um, I think there's interest in stuff. And this is just like for future type, type of things that we could look at. When you wear like actigraphy devices on the wrist, you could isolate the movements for the training, but you could also isolate the movement that's outside of the training as in what's the kind of ambulatory movement that's happened across the day. Because I think sometimes we see, particularly in the amateur ranks or people coming up in any sport is, oh yeah, you came and you trained for two hours in the morning and then you had the rest of the day off. What's wrong with you? But then you look at actigraphy and you go, well, actually he was digging the garden for seven hours afterwards, right? So there's these type of things that happen or I was out playing with my kids. But then from wearing those as well, you can actually see the sleep as well. So you can kind of build up this kind of, you know, training load curve, the sleep thing. And then you can kind of, start looking at it over, over time as well. So I think like if people, if they're thinking about accelerometry, you can get a lot of data out of wrist-worn ones as well. Obviously wearing wrist-worn ones are hard in combat sports. You've got to think about the contact and the grappling and how to move around. But um, there's just, it's, it's just in terms of if collecting more data around that is, a, is an interesting thing to do to offset the trend load and look at the recovery as well. That's from a kind of a sleep recovery side I'd be looking at it too from that angle. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's definitely something that we want to look at over the next few years because quite, quite a lot of the training load uh, literature in most, most sports doesn't uh, take that part into account. It yeah. just looks at what they do in the training session. Well, that's just two hours of the person's day. Like you say, they've then got to go shopping. They've then got to pick the kids up from school. They've got to do all these things that are still putting load on the body. Yeah. But I think the, the problem is trying to measure that in a real-world environment with a group of athletes who could live everywhere all over the place 
I think just the difficulty of getting usable data in a group of athletes around their entire life is just so difficult that most people don't even attempt it. Um, and even with this, even with this study, we had 14 participants complete the study, but we recruited 25. So that shows what the dropout rate of these mm. studies are just from working in a real world environment. Cause we weren't, we didn't place any intervention on it. This wasn't a control, yeah. it was controlled, but it wasn't controlled in terms of what they did. Yeah. If the athlete didn't turn up for training, didn't get any data from them. Yeah. So trying to do that in their everyday life as well at this stage, that's, that was just a step too far. It's a, it's a good point though, Ian, because from um, just, I mean, within the same, same realm, it's, from a nutritional perspective, we also struggle when we look at energy expenditure as a product of what's exercise energy expenditure and then what isn't. So like yeah. non-exercise yeah. activity thermogenesis. And in, in the case study that we did with the, the Taekwondo combat sports athlete that we published um, last year, he actually wore at, um, an accelerometer the entire time because um, we were basically trying to quantify NEAT so the amount of activity that he was doing from that. And again, just anecdotally, because we didn't really go into this in the paper, but thinking of it from a perspective of, I suppose, energetic cost and then the amount of work that, you know, so load, if we quantify it as that, as, as he was doing, um, you know, say a thousand calories of his day would be from training. He's burning like two and a half thousand calories the rest of the day, you know, because the yeah. guy was was working in a, he, he was like, working in a, um, a tool factory so he was up and down ladders and moving boxes and then he was in university and then it was like and I remember looking at it going for a lot of the stuff we do in energy expenditure and very similar to what Chris is saying about training load we don't plug that bit in to any equations that we use that's just kind of disregarded and we just talk about load and we just talk about the energy expended and we just talk about you know what he did in training whereas I remember looking at this 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 guy and thinking bloody hell he does a lot of activity like there's a lot of load and a lot of energetic cost outside of his his training sessions but yeah it's a good point it's something that we we probably really need to look at but then as chris has mentioned it's hard enough getting them measuring them in bloody training never mind measuring, measuring them in the in their everyday life yeah but uh, but i think if you can like kind of like a proof of concept and i, I totally agree with you chris that it's so hard to get people like you know, and it will drop out for a whole host of reasons. And like you said, there was no intervention here. So it wasn't even really that invasive, but, you know, fighters get injured, life gets in the way, you know, stuff goes on, people have fallen out to go to their gyms, whatever it might be. So there's all these different factors. Um, but what's interesting is from a parallel world where I also do some work in, um, in sort of mining and oil and gas, particularly in these remote areas of Australia where people go away for two weeks and work. And they've actually got a problem where like a lot of them are actually getting fairly heavy sort of gaining a lot of weight. And the, and the common thing is like, yeah, well, I'm on my feet for 12 hours a day. So I'm in a plant or I'm doing outdoor mechanical work and I've got, I've got, a, so in that, in the, and we haven't cracked that now either. And so to speak in terms of what's a fitness for work or human performance, where you got to take in the long day, which is 12 hours, the total hours of wakefulness could be like 16 or 17 because they've got to get up, commute to the mine site, get their lunch and whatever. But then you've got the heat stress where it could be like in the 40 degrees Celsius they're wearing long sleeves, long pants. So there's heat stress monitoring that's done and thermal loads are worked out. But then we often measure the sleep overnight, but we never look at the activity really during the day. And we don't build up a profile and go, this is a male, 40 years of age, here's his kind of baseline. 
he's doing this amount of activity during the day. He's at this weight. So his caloric intake is either it's a deficit or it's too much, whatever it is. And he's trying to train for an Ironman, but he's only got like 45 minutes a day to train. So how do you work out the best path for him? And he might be doing a week of days, a week of night shift and a week off. So how do you kind of plot that as well? So you, and you get a lot of fighters as well doing shift work. So that's why you start getting all those increasing variables in. And as we know as well from the, the shift work literature as well, that most shift workers will gain, you know, if two people, Carl, if you and I start a job next week and we're both 80 kilos, and I'm doing day shift and you're doing rotating shift work, by the end of the year, you'd probably be somewhere around 85, 86 kilos, just from that, like, you know, deregulation of your um, leptin and ghrelin hormones. And so if you've got a fighter then in camp trying to cut weight for the six weeks out beforehand or eight weeks, it's going to be extremely difficult for, for that fighter to cut that weight and even more so if they're female. And then, so that these are all these kind of contributing factors that come into this um, which, and I'm, and I'm not, Chris, don't think I'm detracting from your study about the trend law. I think it's awesome. And it's so data rich, but when I read studies like this, my first instinct is, Oh, we could do this. We could do that. We could do this. So I'm always like getting jittery about all the other possibilities because I think good research makes you do that. Of course, some people think that's a criticism and it's not a criticism. I think good research makes you think about how you can build upon it and we keep pushing the needle. So please take that as a, as a positive, not a negative when I say that. I'll be honest, no, I, I'd be very, I'd be very happy if I was eighty or eighty-five kilos at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, that's what I took out of that, to be honest. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, go on. No, no, I'm just going to say, no, I, I, I entirely see where, where you're going with that, Ian. I mean, the whole point of the study is to just get as a starting point. Yeah, this was just what we we're trying to do. What is the absolute basic information we could get from this training? And there's there's a thousand different things we weren't able to collect from this uh, oh, yeah. in this study, um, and not just from the from the from their lifestyle and their jobs, but uh, I'd say about half these fighters their 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 job was also to coach at the club. So before their training session, they might do two hours of PTs with members of the general public, and mm. they might be holding pads for two hours, or they might be demonstrating double legs for two hours. But we didn't ke- we didn't capture that data because it wasn't part of the normal training. Yeah, it was yeah. only about halfway through the study that I realised, crap. Of course, this is a whole area of load that is going to be affecting them. But because it's not part of their training, we didn't capture it. So that is definitely something that does need addressing in the next yeah. couple of studies. Non-training yeah. wake wakefulness or something like that. Yeah, Chris, on in the paper on table two, you got all these categories of warm up, striking drills, wrestling, BJJ, striking sparring, wrestling sparring, all these categories. So did you sit at the side of the mat and actually go 10 minutes on this, 15 minutes, categorizing yep. all those? Yep. Jesus Christ. Uh, every, every single session sat by, the, sat by the side of the mat in every club that I was in with a, a big A3 sheet of paper with a table set out. Um, in fact, the, there's a link to the, t- to the table on, on the paper uh, with a stopwatch, just watching every session. Um, more sessions, it was it was fairly straightforward because once you got in after, after a week of pilot testing, you get into the routine and yeah, yeah. Uh, and everyone's doing the same thing. You just make sure you're watching. It was when there was two or three different things occurring in the same session. So like you'd have yeah. a group of fighters in the corner getting yeah, ready yeah. for a fight. You'd have a group of relative newcomers doing something over here. Then you have a group of people just coming back in. Or, those were the complicated sessions. That's where it got handwritten notes everywhere. Yeah, my life for a year was basically just watching MMA sessions and not being able to join in. So that was fun. You ended, <laughs> you ended up, like, you did over 400 sessions, if I remember, didn't you? It was something crazy like that. 
405 individual sessions in the end. Mm. Um, but I also did six weeks of pilot testing before that. They didn't go into the data analysis to actually design the sheet and choose the categories as well. This is an obsessed money and this is a man who loves MMA. <laughs> it's, no, it's good. I, I think we need that. We need more people like that. I'm, yeah. I'm the same as well. Like even, even like on Fight Pass, you know, I'll be watching fights there during the week. I'm see the problem now I have is I'm doing research in MMA, um, and I'm working in Formula One and in baseball, and they're all time-consuming sports, especially baseball because yeah. they play like a game every day, right? It's like 162 games in 180 days. So you know, it's in some ways it's like the dream job here in the morning, like computer on screen there ipad with baseball on there there could be fights on under on a phone over here as well so like kind of like you're just shaking like you know looking at it and you think jesus this is crazy got all this work to do as well you know and you're interfacing and interchanging between like shift work stuff and research and sports but it's actually a dream job really even though it's you know there's lots of stuff going on it's actually we're quite fortunate that we can make even minimum wage i think sometimes we should be making more obviously but i'm saying it's a great way to make a living and it's so interesting. I think research and we, we should be paid more. So give us more money, everybody. Yeah. It's a, it is a great job. I, I, I'm like you, Chris, I was the same with type of research. Once I got, once I cracked the seal, I was just, you just start spinning and that's it. And it becomes that kind of an obsession because the more you research, the more you know, the more you find out, the less you know, and the less you know, the more you want to know. And you just keep digging and digging and digging and you get yourself in these crazy loops and you just, yeah, it's infuriating, but awesome at the same time as well. So, um, yeah, it's a pity didn't teach us this at school. I'll probably be still at school. So, yeah. And, so you broke that, these, that, um, you broke these, uh, this data out and these nice little graphs as well, Chris, where you had like weeks one to eight and you had these lovely, lovely little bar charts with the scatter, scatter plots and the standard deviations on them or standard error bars. Um, error bars, yeah. The error bars were standard deviations, sorry. You have this yeah. on, um, figure one, um, so that's the aggregated data for the week for all those people. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So when yeah, you look so at, when you put this all together from just a group level, before we get down to individuals from a group level, was there anything that surprised you when you start graphing this data like this? What stuck out to you? Uh, the most surprising thing to me was the, how low the training load and the training durations were for the actual group overall. Mm -hmm. um, because just, just from my own experience within the sport and just from talking to fighters, I expected it to be quite a bit higher. Um, and from pilot testing, talking to a couple of the people I, I did during the pilot testing, they were talking about training three, four times a day. And I was expecting the numbers to be quite higher, but then when you start observing them, you realize you're not necessarily training three or four times a day because they might be talking about one of these sessions where they're just turning up and just going through the motions of, I'm just going to tweak this, tweak this technique on the single leg for half an hour. Now, at the same time, about six months before we uh, got this put, got this paper out, Joe Coyne uh, published a paper with some Australian fighters and Nazaruddin published a paper with, uh, with some British fighters. And they were showing training uh, SRPE, so sessional rate and perceived exertion, the overall training load, of around about three to 4,000 per day. Uh, sorry, average of three to 4,000 per day for each, each participant. Whereas ours are coming out around an average of around 2,000 mm. per day. Now, I think this might indicate the difference in levels and standards and the opportunity to train. Because I know that some of the sampling Joe Coyne's paper were UFC level fighters. And the participants in Nazaruddin's paper, I think were relatively high level pros as well. So I don't think that these participants were having to train 
and work, I think they're able to just train throughout the course of the day. Whereas the group we've used is a mixture of pros and high level amateurs. So I think the opportunity to train wasn't necessarily there for this group, but I was very, I was still surprised at how low the training load in duration was. So that's interesting you said that, Chris, because that's what I picked up on straight away. When I looked at the total training duration across the eight weeks and for listeners not looking at the graphs, again, hit the link in the show notes and you can read this, go to figure one and go to panel figure one A. And if I look at this left to right and I just, I'm just drawing my own kind of eye of average, being generous is probably about 300 minutes a week, which is about five hours of training. So the, the, one of the questions I have for you today, does that include the other stuff where people train weights, go for a run, do all that other stuff? That's all included. Yep, I, I got them to record all the strength and conditioning sessions alongside their uh, MMA sessions as well. And again, this was something that I wouldn't say I was surprised by, but there was very, very little S&C being done outside of the individual MMA sessions by this group. I think uh, I think less than 16% of the sessions that were recorded were strength and conditioning based. And there was one participant who did CrossFit as well. And I'd say about 6% came from just her her recording. So the, the absence of S&C in this group was quite remarkable as well. So, so Chris, when people are saying they're doing two a days, is, is it two a days like I went into the gym for an hour and I did 30 minutes of grappling and 30 minutes of striking? Is that what they're classifying as two a days? Are they using that as a, as a substitute? No, no. Um, the, most of the people who are saying they're doing two a days, they are doing two a days, but they might, in a two-hour session, there might only be about 50 minutes of actual activity, of actual work oh, being done. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, within... The, within this, these analyses, we did include the rest times in between drills and the warm-up times within the overall duration, but the actual effort where they're doing something meaningful, i.e. going through the drills, going through sparring, going through the actual technique, it's only about 50, 50 minutes out of a two-hour session. So they are doing two well, a day. They are in the gym for two hours, but they're not working for that full two hours. So, so does anybody yeah. ever look at this measure, which comes out of engineering, actually, and this is a kind of a crossover thing, utilisation? So, for example, you could have total time dedicated to training, but their utilization of that time actually training is roughly about 40%. Because that, that's an um, interesting way to look at it, isn't it? We do that with sleep as well, sleep efficiency. What, how much of the bed, bed time in bed are you actually using for sleeping and how much of the rest of it are you using to build a fort and play games, right? So that would give you your sleep efficiency measure, where I think maybe if you said, right, because I think you might have these gym rats. Well, I'm in the gym all day. Yeah, you are. But are you actually training all day? Or are you just yeah, doing 10%? Yeah. Because if you're struggling for time and you want to work and you go to study, why don't you go in and get that utilization measure up above 90%, hit your trend and get the fuck out and do what you have to do? Just on, on that point, Ian. So pre previous to Chris, actually, um, and I suppose this is where it's helped us for, for Chris's PhD, we, we did a, a joint-funded PhD between LJMU and the English Institute of Sports hmm. um, for the Olympic Taekwondo team here in, in Great Britain. And, and I know I sent you the thesis, Chris, so you probably had a chance to scan through it. Very similar to Chris, we had a really good PhD student, um, Dr. Ailish McLaughlin, as it is now. She, she finished a couple of years ago, who pretty much did the same study as Chris um, in terms of training load. And this was with, like, Olympic level practitioners yeah. in in combat sports. Um, unfortunately, we haven't published any of this yet because we're not allowed to until after Tokyo. 
which oh, is a shame because yeah, I think it would have been yeah we've got yeah. an we've got an embargo on it and I think it would have been quite nice to have that out so that I mean again it's it, you know it's, it's apples and oranges but it's all fruits if you think of it in terms of combat sports but supporting what Chris has found even in these guys who were training for the Olympics I, I remember just anecdotally on one of the days in one of the sessions I think it was a 90 minute session uh, and Ailish had done the same notation as Chris the average training time was 18 minutes out of 90. Um, and I remember us like really querying and going, are you, are you sure? Are you sure you've done the, yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. timings right? And you, and she said, the reason why, and Chris, I don't know, the, the reason why I brought this up because I thought it would be an interesting discussion point. The reason why is because a lot of the time was actually spent by the coaches talking through what needed to be done. So technically, tactically, we're going to do this and it needs to be done in this way and and breaks and you know so yeah there was actually only 18 minutes of quantifiable work in a 90 minute session so like you're like you guys are saying when you then attribute that to load and you're looking at the load you're thinking these guys are like top 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 level mm. why why are the load so low and it's like well you could only do an 18 minutes of bloody work in a in a 90 minute session it's not not really a surprise that the the loads are that low but did you see that as well chris was it a, a lot of it was spent just talking you know especially I think this was more for like the heavy technical tactical mm. sessions rather than the conditioning sessions and, and stuff per se but yeah I just thought I'd raise that now as a as a discussion point yeah um, and, I, and we did see the same pattern in the MMA sessions especially for the uh, early week and midweek sessions where, where it very much was around drilling new techniques or drilling new transitions there was a lot of time where the coaches were explaining, this is how we do this, this is where you have to put your hip, so on and so forth. But I think that that brings up a really important thing we need to consider in training mode. We, well, from my perspective, I'm, I'm very much an applied physiologist. I'm interested in how the body's responding. And that's why we tend to look at training load and RPE from the physical work that's being done. But we can't also forget that there's a very high mental strain of thinking about that skill learning process and trying to embed those skills in, into your, I'm going to use a wrong term here, but into your brain. And I think we do need to start spreading this work out more to um, a motor learning specialist to try and understand the load of that as well, because, okay, the, like Carl said, 18 minutes of movement in a 90 minute session. Well, that means that there's 90 minutes of the brain working really hard to embed these skills and understand these skills. And I think we saw the same thing in the MMA group. They might only be physically moving for 50 minutes, but they're still having a lot of mental strain of trying to understand and learn those skills as well, which the training load uh, measurements that we tend to use doesn't necessarily pick up. So I think training load research as a whole needs to bring in that aspect of the load of skill learning and motor learning. And going back to what Chris said before, a lot of what we know about training load comes from sports where there's probably not that element, that skill-based element. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So as Chris have said, using those methods to quantify a skill-based sport is just well. Th this is why Chris has done such a good job in this paper. To be fair, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, in my mind, I'm just as I'm looking at been thinking like in my mind is like a stacked histogram, which is like, you know, training load time. Then on top of that is the skill time. Then there's the kind of the chatter time, doing nothing, and so then you can actually work out what's the value add. And dependent because then as a coach you might say well actually in fact i wanted to spend the first four weeks doing more skill-based stuff and not doing the, the high training load and we wanted to get that in the last four weeks before a fight so that could actually help in terms of 
programming camps as well. But again, I'm See, jumping, the gun, to, jumping the gun there with ideas. So. <laughs> what you'd probably have to do with that, though, given that you're measuring the entirety of the session, you know, and it's kind of like you, you're measuring everything, you'd probably need to do that with like performance analysis software. You'd probably have to yes. record the yeah. session so that you could stop, start, stop, start. So, yeah, I mean, I know our RPA guys do that with like, football well a lot of a lot of like outdoor sports you know football rugby with gps um, data. with the uh, well they use gps data and they also use like the um the the game breaker uh software and, and the cameras and, yeah. and you know they're stop and start them but yeah it would it, i mean it'd be interesting to do that just actually record mm-hmm. a session and go like you say chris how much of it are they actually doing you know physiologically loaded training but how much of it is skill, skill acquisition and then, and then how much of it is actual rest recovery and yeah, it would be interesting. Now, Chris, you also had a measure here called total fatigue score. And with all of these measures here on figure one, there was no actual significant differences, was there, between them, I don't think. Was that right? Did I read that right? Yeah, no difference between weeks for any between of the measures. No. Yeah, so can you just tell us what the fatigue score is, how, how, you, how you measure that? Was that, that was self-reported, was it? Yeah, that, it was self-report yeah. from the uh, uh, Chattard uh, short questionnaire of fatigue. Um, and what this questionnaire is, it's uh, eight questions, each related to, I felt more stressed today, uh, my legs felt heavier today, I've got had more colds, flus, infections. Yeah. I found work more stressful, school, uh, school more stressful. And it's a Likert scale of one to seven. Um, and I had them complete this questionnaire either after the final training session of the day, or if they weren't training that day, an hour before they went to bed. Um, and this, this questionnaire has actually got a fairly good uh, correlation to training load and uh, uh, neuromuscular measures of fatigue in swimming and then swimming and rugby sevens. Okay. Well, it's not been, it's not been used in many other sports. Most other sports tend to do the same sort of thing, but using the Hooper index or using the rescue yep. um, or using the POMS questionnaire. But each of these questionnaires, well, the Hooper Index is pretty quick, but the POMS and the uh, Rescue, they're huge questionnaires. Mm. Asking them to do that every single day, just... Oh, a pain in the it, ass, yeah. Be, yeah, it'd be an absolute nightmare. They just wouldn't do it. Whereas this short questionnaire fatigue, it's two minutes of a job, quick at the end of the session, boom, boom, boom. Um, and I, and the, we did some analyses that we've not published. But it's, it's, they've just ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, but each of the questions does have a each of the questions on their own has a relatively moderate to high correlation with the daily training load, but also the soreness ratings that we also measured uh, for the different body regions. So it does seem to go, give a good, a fairly good indication of how generally tired and fatigued they are feeling. Um, but because it is related to the load as well, if the load's not changing, the fatigue isn't going to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so we kept that plot in there just to show that Look, even though their training isn't changing at all, their fatigue isn't changing at all either, which can be seen as a positive and negative thing because they're not actually getting any more tired. We can't say that overreaching is occurring. Exactly. I was, yeah, I was just going to say that, yeah. yeah. Fatigue isn't going up and down. They're probably not going to be getting any physiological improvements either because they're not getting the overreaching in the first place to cause the adaptation. So this static training load probably isn't having any effect on their physiology or their or their physical capabilities either. Yeah, I, so, read a, I, I read a paper of a while ago. I can't remember the source. So it was something like that the elites actually train somewhere up around 20 hours a week. And like the Olympians were sort of like 14 to 16 hours a week. 
and then you know kind of sub sub amateur elite or something that had these categories it was like nine to 12 hours and then you had the amateurs were like sort of down so that's why i was very surprised with that training load because i would have expected from what i hear that it would have been sort of at least 10 hours plus and i think to myself i'm a 43 year old recreational jiu-jitsu guy and does a bit of swimming and i i'm clocking minimum 10 hours a week maximum 14 i'm like averaging 11 like 11 and a half or something a week i'm thinking geez if i can do that why wouldn't these guys be doing something similar you know yeah yeah so it's yeah. a bit surprising did you with the training categories you had warm-up and striking drills and so on was there any which was the predominant one that people did did or did more fighters depend on the style let me reverse this question up actually because this actually might get into fighter kind of archetypes if we think about different fighter types um classic example that fan favorites that people will know about Nate Diaz right very much endurance based athlete you know not like a big kind of a bodybuilder Tyron Woodley looking kind of guy lots of endurance goes all day like I think if if the round had no time limit Nate Diaz would be the world champ right I'd probably all wear classes I think he kicked the shell of everybody he's VO2 max probably through the roof right so use that long game Conor McGregor a bit more compact gases out probably a bit earlier very good striker a lot of power um, and so like, you know, McGregor might do a lot more kind of striking drills and movement drills where I would say, you know, Diaz probably from a jiu-jitsu background would predominantly grab, go more towards grappling. So I'm just wondering if you saw a difference in the amount of time that people spent in those categories um, and was it different between gym and fighters, male versus female? And was there any kind of, did you try and draw that back to maybe like a fighter kind of style? And it was any, can you comment around that? It's a bit yeah, broad. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, it, it, to be honest, that, that, those are the kind of things that I was thinking about all the time during the collection because we did this data collection at four different clubs. Um, and how much time they spent uh, on wrestling or striking or jiu-jitsu entirely depended on what, what the coach was uh, highly skilled at and what they saw as being the most important mm. thing. So there was one club where the coach uh, came from a kickboxing background. He's a, he's a, he was a former international MMA fighter, but he was very much a kickboxing stylist. So they spent a lot of time doing kickboxing drills. Uh, there was one club where their coach's strength was very much submissions, very much once you're on the ground, that's when we go to work. So they did spend a lot of time drilling, drilling jiu-jitsu. And then there was another club where the coach, decided, coach was of the opinion that Actually, what matters is the transition between striking into the takedown. So they spent a lot of time drilling the striking into the takedown. Yeah. Um, so it entirely depended on what the coach felt was the most important thing for performance and what their strengths were. But there still emerged a pattern where even if the coach was very much a wrestling-based coach, their preconception of wrestling being the most intense part, they would spend they would do several drills in that area, but they would be very short drills. They would spend a relatively short amount of time drilling the yeah. wrestling, but spread out over a longer period of the session. Whereas the, um, and even the kickboxing coach, he, he had a preconception of kickboxing drills, relatively low intensity. So he'd actually have a longer period of drilling, but it were pretty much equate to the same amount of time that the person spent on the drilling session but in shorter segments, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'd, so they'd end up spending the same amount of time on their favourite part of MMA, if you like. But what the only thing that differed was how many breaks they'd have in between 
and how much time they spent actually drilling within that time. So it seemed to equal across all four clubs, regardless of what their preferred style mm, was. They all ended up spending a greater amount of time on striking drills and jiu-jitsu drills and a lower amount of time on wrestling drills, even though their preferred style, if you like, was wrestling or their preferred style was kickboxing. And I think it's based on how what their preconceptions of that's most knackering, so we'll do the least amount of work on that one. This one they can do for ages, so I'm going to get them to do this for ages. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, Carl, I want to just jump to you for a second, because, Carl, you've worked with some individual fighters in the UFC one-on-one. -on -one. Are you able to talk about that work and who they are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, sure. so you've, yeah, you've worked with some of those fighters, and I'm just wondering from an individual, because what Chris has done here really nicely is shown this kind of, from the different gyms, the, the kind of the observation of the training loads and so on. I'm just wondering from a practical standpoint of view, when you work with a fighter, do you sit down with a fighter and say, um, can, can you just name a fighter you've worked with? Um, Molly McCann. Molly McCann, UFC. right? So Molly McCann, yeah. one of the top, like, you know, she was she fight at Flyweight 125? Fly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, has yeah. she done Strawweight before but had trouble with the weight? No, 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 no. no. Well, she had trouble with the weight before she met me and that's what it was. All right. Did she fight at 135? <laughs> Did she move away class? No, 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 no. no always she's, always, she's always been, she's always been Fly, but she, uh, yeah, she had, she had problems with Fly, but not anymore. Okay. Uh, maybe I looked her and thought she could make 115. Maybe that's what it was. Anyway, <laughs> hey, that's a that's that's a conversation that that a coach has with me all the time. To be honest, so yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, like one of the guys said to me a few weeks ago at the gym, the local gym. Yeah, well, people can just make the way if they want to. I'm like, nah, man, it's physiological. It's like you try and explain like you know fat-free mass and all that. And I said, I'm not a dietitian. I'm just yeah. Well, if they really want to, I'm like, all right, fuck off. Like <laughs> we're not having that yeah. conversation. <laughs> so um. So let's say with Molly, right? You sit down with Molly, she's got a fight, you know, you're six weeks out from a fight, classic kind of training camp. Do you sit down with Molly and the coaches and, and kind of work out, you know, Molly, tell me what kind of fighter you are. Are you more of a striker or a grappler? Are you more of a grinder? Are you more of an athlete? Are you more of a martial artist? Or are you more of a kind of a, like, you just want to go in there and, and throw hands and, and trash the person? So do you kind of work out what type of fighter they are, what they're more going to be like and then who they're fighting so you think oh maybe we need to do more grappling in this so it's going to be more of a grappling based camp and then you know so does that kind of even split that Chris is seen does that translate into individuals or does it kind of change and depending on the person the type they are and the, the opponent yeah no I think um, pretty much all the above of what you said there really made for, for someone at that level so I think the difference being with, with someone like Molly or some of the pros is going back to what Chris said earlier, they'll do more load in terms of the additional things in relation to like S&C and conditioning. Probably when you look at the overall MMA training, it, it'd probably be in the same wheelhouse, to, to be honest, for, for, for what they're doing. But yeah, when it comes to someone like Molly, what we'll do is I sit down with her coach and we know what her strengths and, and weaknesses as a fighter are. But Molly's, Molly's coach is, is quite a good guy. He's quite progressive in that. The first thing that they get done is a video analysis or a play-by-play -play of who the opponent's going to be. And then he figures out basically the way he wants the fight to go. So there'll be certain fights where he's like, she needs an, an engine. She's going to strike for the whole 15 minutes of a three-rounder. Um, it's going to be you know predominantly striking and she just needs to be able to do that. Yeah. We will then base all of her conditioning and SNC around giving her the capability to do that. Or then it might be a case of if she's fighting 
uh, you know, she, she's fighting against somebody who's really good at grappling. We're going to spend more time on grappling this camp. Um, it's going to be a bit more defensive. It's a bit more about her being stronger rather than necessarily conditioned. Then we'll change things around and we'll work a little bit more on that. You always do a lot of things in proportion anyway. You, you try and maintain what you, you know, I mean, your, your general things around just being physically strong and powerful and explosive and, you know, an, an all-round conditioned. Um, but then, yeah, we do try and then taper things. Well, going back to Chris's paper, what we try and do is we try and periodize, which is what Chris didn't find happens in his yeah. paper, around the requirements of, of upregulating um, those those type of physical qualities that, that the individual fighter needs. And then we consider how we then taper that leading into the fight as well. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that the fighters that I tend to work with have quite open-minded coaches and that they're mm. invested in that, I think. Um, and I think from the higher end level, a lot of people potentially see like the UFC Performance Institute and the way they approach things. And, you know, the, the opportunity to do that is, um, it is, is something that they're invested in. But I mean, funnily enough, me and Chris had, had a couple of fighters in for testing this week on one of his other projects. And I mean, we were talking about S&C, weren't we, Chris? And, you know, the, the, these guys were pros and they were like, yeah, you know, I um, I probably really should do S&C, shouldn't I? I <laughs> mean, Chris are like, yes, absolutely, you should be doing S&C. And then he was like, yeah, I think the only time I've ever done it was when I found out my opponent was doing it because he was doing it. So I thought I needed to do it. And me and Chris just sat there like, so you didn't do it because you you thought it was important for your performance. No, I only did it because I just didn't want him, want him to be doing yeah. it and I wasn't doing it. And so, yeah, I think the mindset of this of some, some people is just archaic as well. It's like, it's, it's just not there. So, so Chris, this actually is a nice, um, a nice segue into a question I was going to ask you. Oh, it is pepper. I was going to ask you towards the end, but I'll ask you now um, is when we look at this whole kind of training law thing and we look at, we look at combat sports, we often see a guy that looks like me, right? A skinny, kind of pale, pasty dude with a little pudgy belly knocking out a guy that's ripped because I got good hands, you know? Not that I'm saying I got good hands, but I'm just saying like, you're <laughs> going to see a guy like that, right? Get into the ring and do that or into an octagon where the other guy comes in, he looks like he, man, he's all muscled up. So obviously he might be very conditioned, but technique and skill can overpower. That's one of the kind of cool variables about MMA I think or just having that fighter's mind like we spoke about at the start because I'm like you I, I just no interest in fighting so did you find any um, either in this paper or yourself did you kind of uh, did you see any relationship between people who trained more technique as opposed to S&C and if you just want to comment on because it's on Rogan the whole time they're always talking about like what do fighters do for S&C how many hours this works this doesn't work you know and sort of um, you know it's always a, it's always a kind of a question do people generally tend to do 80% technique related stuff and 20% S and C or is it like 70% technique, 10% S and C and then or 20% S and C and then like 10% like active recovery, like a yoga or something or PNF or whatever it might be. Did you get a feel for that? Did you see that? Um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't put a specific number or a specific percentage on it. But even um, just anecdotally can, would be interesting. I think. Yeah. Yeah. All, all I can say from this group that I observed Hardly any of them did any S and C at all. Yeah, at all. Not even like um, a kettlebell one, or calisthenics or anything. No, nope, wow. nothing. Um, and and one of the gyms that I did the data collection at, 
Uh, they've got their matted training area on one side of the room and a fairly well-equipped S&C section on this side of the room. That was because it was there, yeah, there all day, every day. I added more sessions in that S&C area for myself in between the sessions than any, fight, any of the fighters did. Wow. And, uh, but I'm... But I'm it sounds like I'm slagging off the fighters here and slagging off the coaches. I'm, I'm not, I'm, but it's that mentality of quite a lot of combat sports, not just MMA, where the idea is technique wins and I get fit by doing my technique. And you see it in boxing, you see it in taekwondo, you see it in jiu-jitsu. It's, I think it is just a combat sport thing where there's this mentality of, well, if you have bigger muscles, the Joe Rogan comment, if you have bigger muscles, then you're going to fatigue quicker. If you this this if you've got better technique, you'll beat anyone. Doesn't matter how strong or how fit they are. And I don't I don't know how to break that cycle other than mm. continuously demonstrating. Look, if you get stronger, then you're gonna have better, more accurate technique because it allows you to train for longer, for harder, with fewer injuries. If you do cardio, you will be fitter, so you're not gonna gas halfway through the third round. Um, but I, like I said, out of all these participants, the only person who did SNC regularly was one of the female fighters who also did CrossFit. And mm. she probably took it completely the other end, where she was training MMA twice a day and doing CrossFit six times a week as well, just absolutely burying herself into the ground with training. So I, th- it's, I think it's going to take quite a, quite a while to reverse that trend of fighters seeing SNC as something that is just part of their training rather than. I'll do it every now and then. I'll yeah. do a run every now and then. Um, but yeah, within this group, virtually none of them did any SNC. And as far as recovery methods, again, virtually nothing. So it's interesting because I've often spoke to this uh, with other people as well. And, and my kind of take on it is personally is that, you know, SNC has to be done not for kind of bodybuilding and gaining mass per se. Because I think people sometimes in combat sports think, oh, I don't want to get too big because I'm in a lower, lighter weight class. But I think doing any sort of strength and conditioning, we're talking about conditioning as well. When we're talking about strength as in strength, not hypertrophy, gaining mass, is that SNC can be a combination or a mixture of calisthenics, light weights or kettlebells, heavy lifting. It doesn't have to be Olympic lifting, but it can be just like lifting heavy shit type of thing to get strong pound for pound, like, you know, so you can, regardless of your of your mass. And I think that's where, I, I would think that's one that's good for, long-term general health it's good for like you said as well the ability to keep practicing technique over and over again it stops you getting injured it gives you that extra layer of defense for not getting injuries it actually stops you getting fatigued because you got that kind of you know got that strength and that defense in depth and and then when you do need to use it in a fight because let's be honest you're in a fight you're going to need to use it Josh Barnett spoke about this on Lex Friedman's podcast recently when he was talking about the philosophy of violence. He was talking about, oh yeah, jujitsu, the gentle art. And he even said, that's kind of bullshit. There's a lot of strength involved in it as well. And I think any of us that's done any grappling knows that, yes, technique is good, but we all use strength as well, whatever we can. And we all have felt ourselves getting overwhelmed by people. And I think sometimes the, the cop-out thing is, oh yeah, but you're just using strength. If you use technique, I would have beaten you. Well, you got to deal with the strength. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you convince yourself that you beat me if it was technique for take by technique while you're picking up your bronze medal and I'll go and set my goal. Thank you. Yeah. But like, like I, like I said to some of the bigger black belts at our gym, I say, you know, it's, it's all the one anyway. You wouldn't beat me because I just run away and I know I can run at least a hundred kilometers. <laughs> so I just keep running. And if you can catch me, then we'll deal with it then. <laughs> now, Chris, I am not Stop. doing your, uh, 
it's the mindset, isn't it, though, of fighter and athlete? Yes. You know, and some of them want to be fighters, some of them want to be athletes. And as Chris said, I think it's convincing and you need to be both. You've got to be a good fighter and do what you do. But it'll add good athletes into that mix as well. And you have both of those paradigms. You know, those those are your, like like you were saying the other day, Chris, those are your GSPs and, you know, your guys like that who... That's exactly, and I think that's exactly what I was going to say. I think you have these archetypes of like martial artists, athletes and fighters, but I think GSP to me, I suppose, is more than anybody else where he is a lifelong martial artist. When he is training for a fight, he is an athlete. And when he's in, a, when he's in the week of a fight, he's a fighter. And that's like, he's, he can be all those three things. He can just ebb and flow into each one of them at different times for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. so Chris, I'm not, I'm not doing your paper any justice because you got tons of data in here, and this would take, I could, I could like sit here for ten hours talking about this paper. I love it. Um, so I'm just going to finish on one final data set before we get to the end. Um, this graph here on Figure Three plots A to E, where you broke out those measures that we discussed above in Figure One about like the uh, training duration and so on. You split them out now with no bow and bow. So, am I right in saying that? These fighters were. This was the. This was the. The weeks leading into a bout. So, zero was the week at a bout, and plus one was after the bout. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we had three weeks before a bout. We had the week of a bout, and then we had the week after the bout. This is really nice because we're actually showing the the recovery training load as well, which is really nice. Yeah. Mm. Can you so can you just give us a bit of an overview of what what you observed here leading up to a bout and maybe after the bout? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we actually got pretty lucky with, the, with this part of the analysis because the 14 participants who finished the entire eight weeks, it just so happened that half of them had a fight, a competitive fight in that time, and half of them didn't, which just entirely dumb luck on our part. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't plan for that at all. Um, but the, we were able to line it up, so we had five weeks to compare. And I wanted to see, because I knew that this was an open environment, there, some of them were tra training to fight, this gave us an opportunity to see whether the training changes as we're approaching a competition and whether they do, do, do any kind of taper. Now, because I spent the best part of a year with these uh, coaches and, MMA, and different MMA gyms, they all talked about, well, I'm training up to this fight. I've got six weeks left. And then once the weight cut starts, I'll just stop off there. Or they'd say like the week before, right, this is going to be our, our last hard session. And then we're going to get ready for the weight cut. So I wanted to see whether that was actually the case. <clears throat> So obviously we've got this, this theory from mostly endurance sports about the 14-day taper where we reduce the amount of work someone's doing but keep their intensity high to let them have a bit of a rest, allow fatigue to uh, dissipate, but keep the sharpness. I want to see whether the MMA fighters stuck to that. But we can see that there, there isn't any real taper. The only time that mm. the training load changes between those who are getting ready to fight and those who aren't is pretty much the week of the fight. So the seven days leading up to the fight, rather than having a taper where they just reduce the volume and keep intensity high, they just stop training. They just don't do anything that week. So because they've left it until the week before the actual competition, and rather than having a gradual reduction in training volume, they just stop it, stop it completely, there's no reduction in fatigue. They're stepping into the contest pretty much as fatigued as they were four weeks prior or three weeks prior which likely means that performance isn't going to be any better either. And in fact, you mentioned uh, Israel Halperin. He did a case study a couple of years ago. Well, him and his colleagues did a case study a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago of a boxer where they tracked the boxer's taper leading this competition. Yeah. And I think he did a 10-day taper 
and his fatigue didn't dissipate until four days after the the boxing match, which stick which matches the 14-day taper that endurance athletes used. So I suspect that this would have the similar sort of scenario here. Even though we've only got the week after the fight, I think we'd see a reduction in fatigue, possibly two weeks after the fight, or once they start getting back towards their normal training status again. But out of all out of the seven fighters who had a fight, I think uh, five of them had the week after the fight off, whereas two of them straight back into normal training, straight after a competition when the fatigue was already high, their strain was already high, they've had a competitive fight. Uh, I think one of them did a full three rounds in that fight as well. They were back in the gym on Tuesday. Now, this is always held up in like, MMA fan circles as, oh, it's a real fighter. He had the fight on Saturday, he was back in the gym on Monday, he's working hard, he's grinding. But seeing this data, it shows that that's not how we need to be doing it. They need a, a real amount of time to allow that fatigue to dissipate before getting back into the training because that is probably more likely going to lead to overtraining than yeah. the stagnant training pattern we've seen. Um, so they could have like elevated CK levels, creatine canise afterwards. Afterwards, they could be have general fatigue that needs to all kind of just give a bit of time to settle, depending on the training load. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Everything o- alongside just the the physical impact of going through a training camp and having a fight as well. We still don't know what the uh, what the muscular damage from regular MMA training and regular impact is. We don't know what the damage to tendons are from mm-hmm. the regular training and regular impact put a fight on top of that and then jump straight back into that eight-week, 12-week grind, we don't know what the long-term implications of that are going to be and how this is going to affect their training and, and health over several yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, long-term, yeah. So just, just on yeah. that, just on the, on the fight, you had seven fighters. Did you manage to maybe separate them out and look at the training load before and then the outcome of the bout? So those who you know, reduced their training load by 10% had a better chance of winning or versus those who reduce their trend low by 50%? Uh, no, no, we didn't look at that. Um, I did consider looking at that, but at the same time, we, because MMA is so complex, there's no way of knowing whether the win or loss was due to fitness, whether it was due to physiological consequences, yeah. or, or whether it was down to their skill, or if someone had a knockout, did they just manage to connect on a good punch at the right yeah, time? Yeah, good timing, yeah. The determinants so, of, of winning and losing in MMA, that's something else we don't know yet. Yeah, it's so it's it's yeah, it's it's awesome. That's what's so cool about it. this is like this is like the never-ending story, it's the gift that keeps on giving for researchers. Um so Carl, on that point as well, because one of the things that happens in a week before a fight is that you know, sometimes we see in a week before any event actually, or the weeks before, athletes tend to get sick because the trend load yeah. kind of drops off so much that then they get sick. You know, we got all these kind of respiratory issues happen because like things like interleukin or um, uh, IGF and, and I think interleukin six, all these measures kind of go up through the roof and people get sick. Um, do you, when you're working with individual fighters, do you kind of watch that trend load so it doesn't drop too much so that you want to keep them kind of, and, and sort of my thought would be, we'll keep the training load in term, not the training load, sorry, the training time the same. So if they do like two or three hours a day, you want to keep it the same, but you might lower the intensity at that time as opposed to the timing. How, do, how would that work? Actually, believe, believe it or believe it, not in a taper, it's the opposite way around. What, oh. what you actually do is you reduce the volume, the amount of what they do, but keep the intensity high. Um, okay. okay. So in a, in, a, in a classical taper, what you actually, as Chris said, anywhere as long as 14, as long as 14 and as short as seven days. 
you will exponentially reduce the training volume. So the amount of what they're doing starts to reduce, but you maintain the intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that just serves to, one, take away that training load stress and, and lead yeah, them into yeah. the competition fresh. But at the same time, the intensity serves to keep them, you know, technically, tactically sharp and maintain their conditioning levels. And, you know, not like you said, not offset too much. So it's it's kind of like you're keeping your foot down on the accelerator, but only for, you know, a couple of miles rather than the whole trip, basically. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, yeah, so no, it's the, the other way around. The other way around. Great, I love this. this. is This is great. All right, we've been talking for a long time, which is awesome, and I know you guys are very busy. So, Chris, I suppose just to wrap up, what would be your parting message from this paper? And again, I have not done this paper justice. I've only touched on like four or five points, really, and I've even had to rein myself in by a lot of my questions. So, um please go and have a read of this paper. Um, like I said, it's freely available. So Chris, what is your kind of part and message to, you know, fighters, upcoming fighters, coaches, physiologists? What, what would you say to them as the kind of takeaway message, a practical application from this paper? Uh, in terms of the practical application of the paper, it's something that we haven't touched on at all in this conversation. <laughs> the, uh, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it, 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 absolutely fine. The, um, one of the things that we were able to do for each of the training categories that we looked at, we were able to determine what the perceived intensity of each of these categories are, and then what the actual load of each of these categories are within a standard session. So now we've got some a much better understanding of which categories are actually most intense. So the preconception before was that jiu-jitsu drilling, low intensity, do as much of it as you want, wrestling drilling, high intensity, really uh, keep it low yeah. what we find in practice is that the amount of jiu-jitsu, rest, uh, jiu-jitsu drilling that they do means that they're actually getting the same amount of load from jiu-jitsu as they are from wrestling so we end up with that static load across the week and the static load across the entire session even though they're trying to reduce the most intense categories so i think from a practical standpoint now we now we've got a better understanding of how intense each of the training types are we can now work with coaches to better plan out the load throughout the week and throughout the training camp to get these undulations in training load, to get the undulations in fatigue to bring about these improvements. For me, from a practical standpoint, I think that's the most important part of this paper. Yeah, that's great. Look, guys, thanks very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. This, is, um, this has been a, a, a great conversation. Like I said, this could be 10 hours long, so... It's like a little mini masterclass here. So I really appreciate it. And well done, Chris, on this paper. And again, go and read it, guys. It's awesome. And check out Carl's work as well. And Carl's been on the podcast as well, delving into some of his work previously. So check out that episode. All right. Thanks very much, guys.